Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we are in week two, our first week of really walking through these letters of First and Second Thessalonians in this sermon series called Humble Hope. And the more that I say those words and think about those words, the more that it becomes a prayer for me and for you and for the church. Last week, we talked about how Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke ended up in Thessalonica. They were led by a vision from the Holy Spirit, a man of Macedonia. And now today we're going to begin our summer journey through these letters. We're going to go verse by verse, so it'd be a good idea to have your Bible. If you have one of those booklets, uh, this would be a great time to have those with you. And feel free to take notes and, and underline along the way. But first, before we get into the text, I just want to point out a few things for you to know about the Thessalonian church. As we begin, this is important background and context. The first is that Thessalonica is a strategic city. It was a strategic city in the first century, and it's still a strategic city today. There's a beautiful modern city. It's called Thessaloniki. It's built on that ancient city. And today that city is in northern Greece. It's on the north coast of the Aegean Sea on the Thermaic Bay, and it has a beautiful view across the bay to Mount Olympus. Back then, in the first century, it was a Greek imperial capital city of the province of Macedonia. It's a port city. It's very strategically situated in that port, but also on a crossroads, an actual highway called the Via Ignatia. It's a Roman highway that runs all the way from what is today Istanbul to what is today Albania and the Adriatic Sea. It's a strategic place. Second thing to know is that Thessalonica was a pagan city. Being that it was a cultural center, it was also a fairly godless place. There were imperial cults that were present with sort of their impotent blend of civic and domestic religion centered around the worship of of various Greek gods and the Roman emperor. But those rituals that they gathered around didn't have any moral answer to the temptations of a port city on a crossroads. Things like sexual promiscuity of every kind were commonplace. Drunkenness was normative. Gambling was prevalent. And violence was quite regular. But, and this is the third thing to know, Thessalonica had a Jewish community, and it was there before Paul arrived. We don't know when these Jews arrived in Thessalonica, but when Paul arrives in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17 we see that he visits a synagogue upon his arrival. This chapter in Acts 17 is important for us because this is the account of Paul's first journey to Thessalonica. I want to read it for you. Follow along with me. It'll be on the screen if you want to follow in your Bibles. Acts chapter 17, starting at verse 1. After Paul and Silas had passed through uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I'm proclaiming to you. 
Some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous. And with the help of some ruffians in the marketplace, they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. They were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly. They attacked Jason's house. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the believers before the city's authorities, shouting, These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king whose name is Jesus. The people of the city and the officials were disturbed when they heard this. And after they had taken bail from Jason and the others, they let them go. So that's the account of Paul's journey to Thessalonica. And that's what we know of this Jewish community. And that brings us to the fourth thing that's important for us to know about the Thessalonian church. It's that Paul and the apostles, they were separated prematurely from the Thessalonian church. The apostles, they had been driven out of town like we just read, and they were banned from returning. They had to flee to Berea, which is about 300 kilometers away. Now, how could they stay connected to these believers that they had only been with for a very short time, maybe just a matter of a couple of months? Well, Paul tries out a new method. He sends Timothy from Athens, where they were, covertly back to the Thessalonian church to check in on them. Paul and Silas are hugely relieved when Timothy returns and he tells them, hey, there's still a Thessalonian church. It's still in existence. They were amazed by this. And not only had they endured hardship and persecution as a church, but they were now positively thriving. Timothy would take two more trips to Thessalonica, each time carrying with him a small scroll in his baggage. That's what we have today known as 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Letters of connection and care. What we'll study in the weeks ahead is the admiration and care that Paul and his crew have for this little church that's enduring so very much. So that's some of the background to these letters that we're going to study. And I think it helps us understand why Paul takes such a caring tone towards this church. That care and love, they begin with the very first words. So let's look at our text for this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 3. Let's begin this journey together. Have your booklets and Bibles ready. Paul, Silvanus or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers, constantly remembering before God and Father, our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we see a fairly formal letter opening for a first century Greek letter. The authors are noted, the recipients are noted, the peace is passed. But then in verses 2 and 3, things get a little interesting. And we have two sort of interpretive choices as we look at this text that we need to unpack. And I'm going to present them to you in the form of two questions. The first is, what does it mean to always give thanks to God? What does that even mean? Some other translations say, 
pray continually for you. What is that? What could that even mean? Does that mean that Paul and, and Timothy and Silas and Luke, they spend every waking hour thankful in prayer for the Thessalonians? They wake up in the morning, they get on their knees, and they stay there all day, and that's where they go to bed? That seems hard to believe. We know that these men were not monks in the desert. They were working hard with the believers in Athens when they wrote this letter. They were doing ministry all day. So, how could they be praying all day? What does this mean? Well, we know from the early church fathers, those that are a generation or two removed from these original apostles, that prayer was taken very seriously very, very early on in the formation of the church. We read about all-night prayer vigils. We know that services of prayer were commonplace in any gathering of believers, and that prayer was taken seriously as a corporate event, not merely a private practice. These apostolic fathers, they give us the best view of the life of the early church, and they clearly believed that Christians should pray daily and for extended periods of time. That's a good word for us. Christians should pray daily and for extended periods of time. This is not monastic all-day prayer, some sort of retreat from the real world. It's not some vague sort of spirit of prayer that we have where we don't actually sit down to pray. It's intentional. So that when Paul says, we always give thanks for you, it's best to conclude that he and his team engaged in regular, extended, and strenuous prayer. Now, sometimes we engage in prayer because of concern. We need God to do a miracle in someone's life. There's a crisis that we're praying about. We, we find ourselves heartbroken and in deep burden for the ones that we're praying for. And we see that in a couple of Paul's letters. Galatians comes to mind. But this is not the case in the prayers towards the Thessalonian church. Their regular, extended, strenuous prayers, they were thanksgiving. Just thanksgiving. Which brings up the second question. What were they so thankful for? What exactly was it that they were so thankful for? That they would engage in this kind of regular, intentional, strenuous prayer of thanksgiving. Well, as we stated earlier, they were thrilled to hear a report from Timothy that the church had even survived under the difficulty that they had to flee from, right? Paul, Silas, and Timothy are giving thanks that not only did this church survive, but it thrives. We see this in verse 3. Here it is again. Constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are thankful for the ways in which this little church is exhibiting faith, love, and hope. Did you pick out those words? Faith, love, and hope. You see, those words, they form a triad. And this is something that Paul is actually quite fond of. We find this triad also in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the chapter about love. It's the one that's read at a lot of our weddings, right? It begins, love is patient, love is kind. Many of you know this. And how does it end? It says, now faith hope and love abide. These three and the greatest of these is love. This triad, this configuration is one that Paul is fond of when he talks about what he would hope for for these churches that he cares about so much and he's so invested in. Faith and love and hope. I want to dig into the grammar here just a little bit. I promise that I won't bore you, but hang with me. 
When the triad appears in 1 Corinthians 13, all three nouns are in the nominative case, which just means we, we can kind of interpret them as they're written. Faith, hope, and love. These are the things that abide. There's not really another way to interpret that. But in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, these nouns are in the genitive case. And this is important because most often when we're dealing with the genitive case, we have a, a series of options that we have when we interpret this. And most often you would add the preposition of. And we see that in the NRSV translation. That's what we read. That's what our pew Bible is. And it says, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. But many scholars think that there is more to this genitive case. The NIV translation, which some of you may have at home, makes a smart choice by seeing the genitive case as one of production. So it reads this way. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. I think that's a preferable translation, and it gets at the heart of what these apostles are so very thankful for. Paul and Timothy and Silas are glad to enter into regular and constant prayer of thanksgiving for the Thessalonian church because they are carrying out activities that confirm the inner changes that they have experienced. What's happening on the outside These attributes are a reflection of what God is doing through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit on the inside. In other words, these apostles are not saying, we're so thankful that you have love and that you have faith and that you have hope. Instead, what they're saying is, we're so thankful for the genuine experience that you've had with Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is producing love and hope and faith for everyone to see. These are not invisible qualities, but they are vibrant realities that are being lived into. Faith is not a creed. It's the action of believing. Love is not a feeling. It is the action of caring for others. Hope is not an ideal, but it's the enduring action of those who are certain of their ultimate future. These attributes are produced by a relationship with Jesus. And we cannot truly acquire them without him producing them in us. Allow me to illustrate. When I was working uh, full-time in youth ministry here at this church, one of the most interesting times for me was Christmas break. I would stack my schedule with coffee dates and lunch dates with students who were freshmen in college. And they often wanted to tell me about their studies and their friends and dorm life and all that kind of stuff. And I, of course, wanted to hear what God was doing in their life in this new season. And I distinctly remember sitting with one of those students who I loved at at Corner Bakery. And I said, so tell me how you're growing in your walk with Christ in these college years. How's, How's your life of faith? How's your relationship with Jesus going? And he paused for a moment. And then he reassured me. He said, hey, you know, all the things that I've learned in youth group, they're still very important to me. He explained that college had been kind of crazy, that he hadn't invested in his faith really at all. But he reassured me by saying that he hadn't lost anything either. And he ended by saying, I really haven't grown and I'm kind of neutral, but I think that's okay because a lot of people just sort of lose their faith completely and I'm just kind of in neutral and I think that's all right. 
Now, I had a lot of grace for this student, but I had to lovingly correct his thinking. You see, he had falsely believed that faith, love, and hope are all these things that, you know, we talk about in youth group, that we, that we work through in the loft and in our youth ministry. He, he had falsely believed that these are things that he acquired in those high school years and that he could sort of put those things in a box for a few years and maybe pull them out when he needed to and that they would be ready for him. But that's not God's desire. And that wasn't my desire for this student. I wanted him to be so tethered to Jesus Christ that faith and love and hope are produced from that relationship. The most encouraging students to me were the ones who stayed committed to Jesus in such a way that they spoke about their experience and I could see the Spirit producing in them faith and love and hope. So in that sense, the Thessalonian church serves as an excellent model for us here today in the year 2020. There is so much swirling around in the world right now, and as a pastor, it's hard for me to make sense of it all. But one thing that I do know is that we need more faith and love and hope in this world. My fear in that is that we will go and search for these things apart from Jesus the only one who produces those things in such a way that they will last. I fear that too often we will see faith and love and hope as things that we can acquire if we try hard enough and if we care enough and if we want them enough. My friends, the Thessalonian church survived and thrived, but they didn't do so by gathering and saying, hey church, let's band together and just increase our faith and love and hope. No, they survived because they were centered on Jesus. And Jesus, through his spirit, created work produced by faith and labor prompted by love and endurance inspired by hope. And Paul rejoiced. And so too does God rejoice when we lean on him and rely on him to be the center of our lives. When we say, God, I can't produce these things on my own. When we confess I don't want to just know about these things, faith and love and hope, God. I want these things to be vibrant realities in my life. When we say, Jesus, produce in me faith and love and hope that will last for the sake of a world that so badly needs them. So friends, we are largely separated. I know we've connected here and there, but I don't really know how each and every one of you are doing, which is really hard for me in weeks like this. I watch the racial conversations that are happening in our country and I see something that is amazing. It's early to say it, but I believe that the church is waking up to the plight of our black brothers and sisters in such a way that is unprecedented in this country. Many of you are waking up to the fact that a member of the body of Christ is suffering And you are choosing, maybe for the first time, to suffer with them. I see evidence of public repentance and confession of sin. I see this incredible moment of God happening, and I want to get together face-to-face with each and every one of you and go, how are you growing as a Christ follower in this season? Because you cannot afford to miss Jesus at the center of all this and at the center of your life. 
My greatest desire is that this moment is causing you not to merely become more educated, but to turn to Jesus. Because that is the literal definition of repentance. Turning again. That you turn to him and then he produces in his church faith and love and hope in such a way that it's not just for us, but it's for others and it's for the world. In such a way that we are compelled to be agents of faith and love and hope for the world that is watching us so closely. When we as a church seek holiness and goodness and justice, not from a social longing or a mandate or from pressure, but from the center of a genuine relationship with Jesus, that is when revival happens in our hearts and it happens worldwide. So for my part, like Paul, as we are separated, I want to say that I give thanks for you. And I commit again to regular, extended, strenuous prayers of thanksgiving for you and all that God is doing in your life. For the faith, love, and hope that Jesus is producing and will produce even more abundantly if we will stay centered upon him. May it be so for us.